Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We recorded this interview on the afternoon of Friday, June 7th. For today's show, I took a field trip down the San Francisco Peninsula to interview Chris Ermson, CEO of Aurora, a company that builds the technology for self-driving cars. I visited his office in Palo Alto to learn what's on his mind when it comes to our driverless future. Like, how do we test autonomous vehicles safely? And what changes will we have to make to our existing infrastructure to make way for robot cars? So here it is, my interview with Chris Ermson, one of the pioneers of self-driving car technology. Today, we're interviewing Chris Ermson, the CEO of Aurora, a company that builds the technology for self-driving cars. Before Ermson co-founded Aurora in 2017, he led Google's self-driving car team, a project he piloted from its earliest days, which has now spun off to its own company called Waymo. And even before working on Google's robot cars, Ermson was a professor at Carnegie Mellon, where he led the team that participated in the 2007 DARPA Grand Challenge. That was when university research teams competed to build cars that could drive themselves through a 132-mile race through the Mojave Desert, all without drivers, of course. Aurora announced earlier this year that it raised $530 million in venture funding. We're thrilled to be joined by one of the leading innovators in autonomous driving about his thoughts on where the technology is headed now and how it's going to potentially change how we organize our cities and our lives. I'm in Palo Alto, California at the Aurora offices with Chris Ermson, who is sitting in front of me ready to chat. Chris, thanks for joining. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's start with the news this week. And maybe this will help explain what Aurora is, because it's a little different than other self-driving car projects. Um, Y'all are partnering with Chrysler to explore self-driving technology, but you're not building cars with them. Can, Can you kind of explain what's going on there? And then maybe it'll help us understand what you do. Yeah, for sure. So Aurora, our mission is to deliver the benefit to self-driving technology safely, quickly, and broadly. And we do that by working with other companies. So early on, we realized, you know, we figured out, let's go do the things that we're good at. And we think that is building the driver. Uh, And so we work with a number of companies to bring our technology to market through their technology. And so in this case, uh, we've signed this agreement to go uh, explore with uh, Fiat Chrysler, uh, how to bring this technology to market for commercial vehicles. Okay, but you're not building cars. No, we don't like, build that's cars. That's what Google's that, trying to do a well, bit more. Well, that's what Fiat Chrysler Waymo. does, right? They're, right? they're really good at this. They've been doing it for, you know, 100 years, and they understand what it takes, and, you know, they're they're excellent. <laughs> they've already, they've, they've figured that out. No need to figure that out again, right? So I guess I have a question looking back at the past now. When you started working on this technology 12, 15 years ago, what inspired you to do self-driving cars? Was it the idea that cars are bad and we should rethink them? Or were you just fascinated by this cool tech? Like why self-driving cars? Yeah, for me. So I had been working on a project with NASA as part of a team and we were down in the Atacama Desert in Chile, which is this crazy, exciting place. And the robot that I was helping work on there uh, moved at a slow walking pace. So 15 centimeters a second. And it, you know, it was experimental, and so it didn't work all the time. And my PhD advisor came down and said there was this DARPA grand challenge, and the idea was to drive it 50 miles an hour across the desert. And I just thought that sounded cool um, and like a really interesting problem. And and so that kind of got me hooked. And then here we are, I don't know, 15, 16 years later. 
Right. So it was like a really cool idea. And then it started, you started to realize that this could have applications. Yeah, absolutely. So the, in those early days, it was, uh, you know, the the competitions were funded by the defense department and we were thinking about, you know, how do we keep our, our, our young men and women out of harm's way, you know, in the supply lines in, you know, the time thinking primarily about Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. And then as uh, we worked on those competitions and then eventually the urban challenge, started to realize like this technology has profound implications on road. And if you look at the 40,000 Americans that are killed every year on our roadways, 1.3 million people globally, um, the vast majority of those accidents, 95% of them are due to human error. And so the technology we're developing, we think can, can drive that number to zero over time. Uh, and that's a profound opportunity. And then when you think about the, the number of people who can't get around in the same way you or I can, you know, whether they have, um, they've lost the privilege of driving or they, you know, they went out for drinks tonight and they, you know, they shouldn't be driving home or, you know, maybe they, you know, maybe they're blind or maybe they have other ways that limit their ability to, to get in cars. Giving those people access seems, you know, like an incredible opportunity as well. I hope it doesn't make traffic worse, but we'll get into that in a moment. Um, I understand that uh, cars will use computer vision and AI to like drive and avoid obstacles, but what about navigation? Because I guess I, I look at Google Maps, which works really well, like eighty to ninety-five percent of the time. You know, I hope they're not relying on Google Maps. How will navigation work? So navigation, I think, uh, will work similar to it. The, what it does today and that, you know, you get in a car and you figure out where you want to go. The underlying map technology will be a little different than, uh, than Google Maps because those are maps that have been designed for people to use. Whereas when we have the, you know, the vehicle using that map, it, it cares about different things. But I guess, will the map, will we have to create new maps for each city where these types of vehicles are operating? I expect so. So okay. the, the, there's one layer of map, which is for, for the people to look at. And that'll, you know, that tells us where the Safeway is and, and, you know, where the place you're going is. And you can kind of understand and consume that. Um, for the vehicles themselves, they use a different map. And it's, it's going to encode things that matter for driving uh, and do that at very high resolution. So where are the traffic lights, where are the lane markers, or where are the lane lanes, um, what has right of way at this particular intersection, uh, uh, you know, what's the detailed shape of the world. Okay, so a lot of dimensionality, yeah. a lot of different things to think about. So I've read elsewhere that you think self-driving cars are about five to 10 years away from like a small scale rollout, but 30 to 50 years away from ubiquity or yeah. kind of a very large rollout. What would you say is the holdup at each plateau there? Yeah. So, so the first, I think within the next five years, um, we'll see small scale deployment. Okay. That'll be a few hundred to a few thousand vehicles. Um, really, this is the it's Silicon Valley speak. This is the zero to one moment of proving that the technology actually works, uh, understanding how customers want to use it, um, convincing ourselves that. Uh, and when I say ourselves, I mean, you know, as a society, that these are you know, sufficiently safe that we trust them on the roadway. Um, and that is, that's that first phase. Once we get through that phase, now it's about how do we bring this to market at a commercial scale? Um, those partnerships that are so important to us as a company, uh, working with those companies to get the technology integrated in the vehicles, bring the price down, uh, and actually start to, you know, manufacture and, and operate them as, you know, like, like the vehicles we have today. 
But it seems like it's it's also going to take an enormous amount of investment from other players too, maybe even the government. I mean, you know, the reason why cars reached ubiquity in general is because the government invested in roads. Yeah. And so what kind of investment do you think would be required for cities to work coherently with self-driving cars? So I think this is actually one of the really interesting parts is that I don't think we need a whole lot of investment from government in the near term. Um, in the same way that if you look at the way the automobile came into uh, into use, we didn't go out and build a bunch of roads uh, and then hope cars turned up, uh, or at least you know paved roads. Mm-hmm. What we had is is you know footpaths, horse paths, cart paths, and bicycle paths, uh, and then as the car came into existence, we realized, hey. It sucks to drive through the mud, uh, and if only it were a little less muddy, um, then we could get between cities more easily. And that led to you know paved roads and and kind of eventually the interstate system. I think we will see the same thing happen with automated vehicles. Fundamentally. It, road networks that are good and easy for people to drive on will be good and easy for automated vehicles to drive on. Uh, and so just kind of making it a little better for people is all we need right now. And then when the technology actually starts to become a scale, then we can ask the question, you know, what have we learned? What are the ways that we can make this a little bit safer, a little bit incrementally more efficient? And and that's when I think uh, local and state governments and, and federal government would, would invest in infrastructure. So like I always imagine not always, but recently have imagined that self-driving cars would require, you know, like barriers to keep pedestrians and bicyclists away. Um, you know, so you're saying that type of infrastructure is not going to be needed at the outset. I, I think that's right. And, and, okay. to, and to be clear, that's certainly one way to solve the problem. Right. And if we had a whole bunch of infrastructure money we wanted to spend, um, I think that would accelerate a certain class of self-driving vehicle. They don't have to be quite as smart because you're right. They, you know, if you put fences around them, you keep the people away, you keep the other vehicles away. It's a much easier problem. And in fact, you can you can see these kind of systems today. So if you go to Heathrow uh, Airport in London, uh, there's a people mover that will you know take you from one of the terminals to a parking mm-hmm. lot, and it just drives down this concrete barrier you know driveway. Um, Our approach, and the way I've been thinking about this for a long time, is that that's too much to ask um, of a city, is to go and, you know, take the roadways or or invest a whole lot to build roads special for these vehicles that don't exist yet. And what we really need to do is take the technology and adapt it to work the way that that we work and live today and and operate in the roads that exist today. Because if we don't do that, then I think this technology just it just won't happen. It won't happen. And also, you know, um, some argue that cars have been really bad for street level life, right? Like roads have cut through cities and deepened segregation and kept us from living more local or sustainable lives. What are your thoughts with self-driving cars and and that? I mean, will that kind of further tear us apart or isolate us? Uh, I hope not. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, that was a very... No, no, I, you know, that certainly... (laughs) But I just think about the development of roads and cars. Things I don't But... Uh, when I when I think about this, actually, you have a much more optimistic view. All right, and that is, uh, I look at cities today, and um, a massive amount of time that people spend in vehicles is is really about the way they utilize them. So, uh, the statistic I heard was thirty percent of traffic in San Francisco is people looking for parking. I heard a more alarming statistic that was eighty percent of traffic in Paris was people looking for parking. Oh my gosh. Uh, so. <laughs> 
imagine you have automated vehicles uh, that take you to a location, you hop out, then it just drives down the block and picks up the next person and takes them where they're going. Suddenly you've alleviated a massive chunk of the congestion in a city. Similarly, if you look at the kind of the floor plan of a city today, somewhere between 30 and 40% of cities is dedicated to parking and roads. Uh, And so Again, if you have automated vehicles operating as a transportation service as part of uh, whether it's private or public transportation networks in the city, you don't need that real estate to be dedicated for parking. That real estate now can be recaptured and it can be used for park space, it can be used for residential space, you know, it can be used for you know mixed residential commercial office space. So there's a real opportunity to take you know, the heart of our city, which is now these kind of, you know, a lot of it is these urine smelling concrete monstrosities mm-hmm. and turn that into something much more interesting. Right. So uh, not everybody would necessarily own a self-driving car once they start to roll out in larger scale. And, and I think that's actually certainly for urban centers. I think it's much more likely that this technology is is a shared platform that people get in and get off. Uh, you know, it's it's an even more convenient version of uh, you know of a bus or a, of a taxi service. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more from Chris Urbson, CEO of Aurora. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So, you know, ultimately driving programs are going to have to make decisions about who's safety to prioritize people inside the car or people outside the car. And I imagine it's a continuum that might change depending on the context. But how are you thinking about this? So so the way I think about this, one is this is a societal question mm-hmm. um, and that ultimately I think there'll be some guidelines that, that we as a society come up with on that. Um, I think it's a little different than personal car ownership. So if I buy a car, um, you know, I kind of, I want it to protect me. If these vehicles really are operating um, as a public service, as part of the shared road network, I think we have to think a lot about the other folks on the roadway um, because they're the ones who didn't necessarily opt into to using that vehicle. And so I, my personal oh, take is that we need to think most about the vulnerable road users, so the cyclists and the pedestrians out there, and prioritize them first. Uh, and then it's the other vehicles that are moving around because, you know, they're in hard, protective, right. you know, cases, yeah. right? Um, and I think when you think about that it, that way, you can you can shape the problem in a way that kind of makes sense. It's true that people in a car are protect, more protected than people outside of a car. And so how do we balance the need to test these cars in very real world conditions with the very real danger of doing so? I mean, it just, I know in Phoenix, there's, it's been kind of a testing ground, but it's, it scares me to think that, yes, we need to test these and, but you know, oh, they're being tested like where we are. I think really that is about, um, having appropriate safeguards and process around it. So we've been developing this technology. We test it on the roads. It's it's an essential part um, of learning. It, much like 
uh, as people, we get our learner's permit first, and we're expected to go out. And there's constraints on how we operate. The same is here. Uh, the same is true with 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 this technology. It's the only way we can gather the data we need to have confidence that we're building something that'll operate. And so for us, it comes down to having carefully trained and educated drivers. Our drivers go through a multi-week process of first observing and then working in the right seat where they're observing the technology and then ultimately in the driver's seat. Um, uh, in our case, these are actually employees of the company. We think that helps make sure that they're even more invested in the outcome than you know contract employees that, that others might use. Uh, so really, it's education, policy, and then a safety-first culture. Um, it's not coincidental that you know when I rattled off the company's mission earlier about delivering the benefits of self-driving technology safely, quickly, and broadly, that safely is the, the first of those for us. Right. And it's, it's interesting that you say um, making sure that the people who are who are the kind of drivers for the driverless cars um, are employees, because so often we see uh, in this industry that people who are doing kind of the testing and the, the difficult uh, kind of frontline work are, are contractors. So that's something I don't hear very often. Um, I'm curious. uh you do see a future, though, where there's not going to need to be a driver, right? I mean, when, so often that's we say driverless cars. We don't mean there's going to be someone in the driver's seat. That, that's, that's, that's literally what we're, we're shooting for, yes, to help make these vehicles be able to move around by themselves uh, and then serve customers. And whether that is uh, giving people a ride from where they're going or, or helping move goods around, we think that's really you know, the, the big opportunity here. So is there a particular type of car or shape of car that's best suited for self-driving technology? Is it smaller, better, or vans? Um, so when the, the driver we're building, we think, works across all of them. So you know, in the same way that I can uh, drive my car home or I can go to the, you know, when I land somewhere and rent a car, right. I can drive that. Uh, we think that's a really important property of the system we're building. Um, yes, I do think if we were to build a, you know, there is kind of the optimal self-drivable car you know it probably looks like a cone so that you can see all the way around it really nearby it just that's what that's what the optimal that's what i want to know I, like I, in, I in a I don't dream think it, world it would be like a cone well, that you well, could see through I, I think i think if you were building a car just to be self-driven right. which i don't think is a particularly interesting car okay. um then i think yes it probably looks like a cone so you can see right wow. next to it um but i you know in practice you know, our company isn't about building technology for technology's sake. It's about building technology that can go help and, and serve people. And so it'll, for us, it'll look like um, a vehicle that's got a comfortable interior where people can, you know, rest or work on their way to where they're going. Or it'll look like a vehicle that has multiple seats in it uh, so that people can share rides uh, and have a much more useful public transportation infrastructure. Uh, or it might be a package van, or it might be uh, you know, an electric um, 18 wheeler that's moving goods between, you know, hubs. So it's it's really about what's the purpose of the, the vehicle. So you say in, in five years, we're going to start to see more kind of test scenarios. Uh, do you expect there to be mostly be rural? I know so far they've focused on cities, but that seems kind of counterintuitive to me. Well, I think the the biggest opportunity is in cities, actually. Uh, it's where um, the most people are. It's where the most commerce happens. And so that's where we can have the biggest the biggest impact. And particularly if you believe, like I do, that this will come to market as a, a shared service. You know, the rural areas, it's much harder to use a shared service just because you know, it takes time to get from one place to another, whereas the density of a city enables that more easily. 
All right, one final break. Then we'll finish up our interview with Chris Erbson. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So this might be a very obvious and possibly annoying question, but it's something that kind of bugs me. Why is the focus with self-driving technology cars? You know, why not better buses or trains or, you know, something that could carry more people um, because cars are not that great in many ways. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a very reasonable question. And it's how do we actually make moving people around safer, more efficient? And buses are great. Trains are great when, you, when there really is a concentration of where you want to go from and go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out we don't live our lives mostly like that. Uh, we live our lives going from going from my house to my office. And you know, there's, there's exactly one person who wants to make that trip every day. Mm-hmm. Um, from my neighborhood to my office, maybe there's a half dozen people who want to make that trip. And so I think it's really about finding the right um, platform, the right vehicle that kind of optimizes how many trips we're making so that it can be efficient. Because really, if you, you, you I'm sure you've seen this where you've got a 50 person bus at two in the morning and there's a driver and one passenger. Yes. And, and that's actually incredibly inefficient. And similarly, one of the challenges with transit routes is where do you put the route? Uh, where does the bus drive? Um, that's kind of a gerrymandered process. Uh, it's also suboptimal for almost everybody. Um, whereas if we could have, say, a four or five person vehicle that's automated, because now we can actually afford to have a four or five person transit vehicle, that can actually go point to point to point and then you know pull those people and take them to, to where they want to go if it's you know nearby. That now starts to become a really compelling transit option. Uh, and with this technology, I think you can do that in a way that's cost effective. Interesting. Yeah, I haven't thought through that. So finally, uh, you've been working on this for so long. What's exciting to you still in this space? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think actually almost all of it. I think the, you know, I, as you said, I've been working at this for 15 years. It's been incredible to see the technological advances. So I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an engineer at heart. 
I love that stuff. And, and seeing what our team is able to do today versus what we were able to do back in the day, it's just, it's incredible. Um, seeing and, and digging further into the opportunities of this technology and the impact, transportation is fundamental to everything. It's how we get around. It's how uh, the goods and, and the food uh, that we consume or use gets to us. Being able to touch that and, and help improve our national and global infrastructure in a fundamentally a fundamental way, that's really compelling. Um, and then when I get a chance to talk to people that are impacted by this technology and move it from kind of an academic understanding of the impact on their lives to like, wow, this will change my life, um, you know, those moments are really special. And it's, you know, I feel like we have a tremendous opportunity, but also a tremendous responsibility as folks working in this space to to push this forward in a, a safe and thoughtful way. All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at April Laser. And thanks again to our guest, Chris Ermson. You can follow him on Twitter as well. He's at Chris underscore Ermson. Thanks to everyone who left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate when you do that. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week, you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews, based in New York. And thanks to everyone who's listening. We will see y'all next week.